Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money only on Money FM 89.3. How do you invest in a bear market? Well, don't head for the exits. We've got some ideas for you coming up. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin speaking today with Arun Pai. He's part of the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. We are going to continue with the Elon Musk Twitter saga and then take a broader look at the market. Has it reached the lows of the years? And as an investor, what are some possible investment strategies moving ahead? Arun, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks as always for having me. All right, let's look at the Twitter saga. The latest Twitter's board says it plans to enforce that $60.9 billion deal with Elon Musk. Last Friday, when Musk tweeted that the deal was on hold, advisors were surprised on both sides. Uh, they had no idea he might be having second thoughts. Some thought he was trying to just add noise to the deal, maybe publicly negotiate for a better price. The merger agreement, though, includes a specific performance provision that does allow Twitter to force Musk to consummate the deal, according to a filing. So should the deal end up in court, Twitter might be able to secure an obligation requiring Musk to complete the merger rather than, you know, winning monetary compensation for any sort of violations of it. Now, when you take a step back, Arun, and look at the Twitter saga, how has Elon Musk you know, a little bit of a two-foot-forward, two-foot-back movement. How has that impacted how the shares have been trading? Yeah, more like two steps forward, five steps back, right? (laughs) I mean, you can tweet all you want that the deal is on hold or whatever, but that is honestly not going to hold up in court. Corporate law and M&A transactions and agreements, it just doesn't work like that, right? And And I think the Twitter board was smart enough to actually put in place that reverse breakup fee Slash material change in the company's situation on info it has on information that it has provided laws to specifically ensure that they are well protected and the shareholders are well protected that Elon Musk just in a whim and fancy can't back up. All of that being said, though, you know, if this goes to court, it obviously becomes a very expensive proposition from both sides, Elon as well as Twitter. And it's in the best interest of everyone for some kind of a deal to take place. This kind of like takes me back to, you know, if you remember right at the beginning of COVID, Mm -hmm. and it seems like decades ago, right? Two and a half years ago, the whole Tiffany and LVMH saga, where LVMH had basically agreed to buy out Tiffany for, I think it was slightly over $16 billion at that point of time. COVID hit, everyone tried to walk away from the transaction. Tiffany took LVMH to court. They managed to reduce the price from 16.2 billion to like 15.8 billion. So nominal change in that, and that was about it, right? Because once the transaction is signed and done, all these legal clauses kick in. Where unless you can prove it's truly fraudulent, you can't just step away. And that's when you saw this whole issue of bots and fake accounts coming into place. This big exchange between Parag the new Twitter CEO and Elon Musk, where Parag basically showcased to Elon how the company, you know, tries to analyze based on public information and obviously their proprietary information, how many bots there are. Elon Musk replied back with like a poopy emoji, right? So you can just see the, it is devolving into he says, she says out in the public forum, because that's Elon Musk's best bet to try to 
spin the narrative in his way to get the SEC involved, try and see there's actually like a fraudulent case happening over here based on numbers that Twitter has showcased. And then we can clearly see, I mean, along with the rest of the market, Twitter ended uh, yesterday at like a $36 per share price when the agreed transaction was 54, right? right? It came close to $50 at the beginning of this month. But the, all market participants are like, okay, this is going to go into such a big legal complication. Mm. And who knows, right? But, and if you look at the financing structure behind it, which is also quite convoluted in terms of the amount of debt equity that Elon Musk is willing to put in, preferred equity that other private equity guys are putting in, all of that sounded great when Tesla share price was over 1000 Yesterday, it ended up at a closing price was $700, right? So huge correction in the underlying source of wealth, which Elon was going to use to try and fund this transaction, that is completely getting decimated also along with the rest of the market. So all of these questions are coming about and both, not just from Twitter shareholder perspective, you can see Tesla shareholders now running for the hills too, because if he's forced to fund this transaction, he will get margin called at a certain point or he will actually have to sell the underlying shares and provide that cash liquidity to the banks who are willing to fund him a certain amount of loan, right? So it's all getting very murky when there are these huge market moves and sadly in the negative direction. So what do you say to investors out there who are looking to Twitter for arbitrage reasons? (laughs) Stay far away. (laughs) It's really not as straightforward. I mean, so if you look at it from a pure legal perspective, yes, Twitter can try to force Elon Musk's hand. But from the perspective of like the time spent in this deal getting done, uh, Elon Musk obviously with his huge fan following, ironically enough, on Twitter itself, to be able to get this deal done at a pre-agreed share price, I think the odds of that at this point in time, as you look at it, are slim to none, right? So it's just a matter of how much of a haircut that Twitter's board will potentially agree to rather than going down this rabbit hole of paying legal fees and what Elon Musk can pull off talking to other investors who are also now running for the hills given the overall market you know, downturn. So from a perspective of taking a punt you know, mm-hmm. uh, on this thing, maybe like a short dated call option uh, to be buying it, I wouldn't try to like buy the underlying stock or anything or try to play like a relative value between Twitter and Tesla shares. If anything, might look at you know, very if there is a cheap uh, call option available on Twitter for like a short period of like one month where you hope that the share price will pop up back to like, say, if they agree on a price of say like 45 or something, that could be something. But on a personal basis, I'm staying away. Now, I remember that once we talked about shorting Tesla shares and um, <laughs> <laughs> the outcome of that. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what do you think uh, this all means for Tesla? You know, he spent yesterday, I think, announcing that he's switching from Democrat to Republican. He's trashed ESG. <laughs> Tesla sunk to its lowest level this year. What is all this noise in social media fracas do you think mean for Tesla and, and all these complications for Twitter as well? What does this mean for Tesla? Right. So, I, I mean, having been burnt once already on the share, and maybe there's that bias that's kicking in in my reply. To maybe this. you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, and, and that's exactly the issue when it comes to dealing with a person that has personality that's larger than life and it had certain tailwinds of diehard supporters, be it in terms of people, some certain people who are willing to buy the product and a whole bunch of people who are willing to buy shares. 
at obscene valuation. I mean, even right now at a $700 price, right? This is a market cap of close to $725 billion, which is more, and you know, all of these memes and things that's going around, like it's more than the market cap of all the other automobile companies combined with a certain multiplier on top, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is absolutely true. But the concern that comes from trying to monetize that position, right, especially during crazy markets, which we were going through, I would say, if you go back, like, say, four or five months for the past, like, say, three, four years. Now, I think things are very, very different. I mean, forget, like, story stocks like Tesla, right? You've got real-world economy companies that are coming out with earnings. I mean, look at any of the big U.S. retailers. Walmart, like Target went down 25% last night. You're coming up with all of these real world economy stocks that have not been able to meet the expectations of revenue, not just top line, but bottom line also. And the market has been merciless, right? So I think that whole era of technology investing and thinking that the future is always going to be bright and gloomy, it just is not panning out. And from that perspective, do I think Tesla's valued at $725 billion? Does it make any sense at all? Absolutely not. I mean, all these other large tech names, look at C, Grab, that's more, you know, coming to home based on Southeast Asia. Mm. But across the board, Zoom, Wayfair, think of any Square, Afterpay, I mean, any Western, Asian any of these tech stocks that were basically flying on the coattails of investors willing to pay 100x revenue, forget even about the bottom line, it's all coming to a crashing halt. And I just don't see how that story is not going to work out in the near future. And for that, like the rest of the year at the bare minimum, right? Like I just don't see any turnaround situation where people are going to be massively optimistic all of a sudden. All right, picking up on that theme, just yesterday I was speaking with a commentator and he was talking about how both stocks and bonds are at lows, you know, incredible annual losses. And the last time this happened, I think he drew a comparison to 2018. Do you think investors are pulling money out of key sectors of the market, Arun? And what does this indicate to you about global sentiment of the global economy? Yeah, I mean, 2018 was like a little bit of a blip as compared to what's happening right now, to be honest, right? Like the the sharp price correction, not just in terms of short-term volatility, but just from the peak to trough, C is down like 70, 80%. Think of any like large cap technology company, correction of anywhere between 25, 30% on the smaller side of things up to like 70, 80% on the higher end of things, right? You've seen such a dramatic correction in largely the tech space. And we've been talking about this for like over a year and a half, I think, where the valuations just didn't make sense. You've seen people pulling out from tech. You're seeing people pulling out from fixed income on the back of all these, the Fed Reserve moves and central banks across the globe. Inflation is not transitory. It's here to stay. And at the rate of the highest inflation of the last 40, 50 years, so naturally fixed income is going to get whacked also when people start pulling out money. So it's been quite a scary situation, to be honest, where, you know, you always would hope that fixed income kind of offsets equities, flight to safety, and vice versa, etc. But in these kinds of situations, and it kind of like goes back to, you know, the Lehman crisis days, cash is king. You're earning 0% interest or like 0.25% interest or whatever that is in the front end makes no difference. Pull out whatever you can, dump it in these safe assets, basically cash, 
and think that you're, you know, going to be just fine out of this. And sure, maybe if you're in a very short term, you're a trader and you're looking to like time the markets, which I think is futile, this might look to be a really good move in the extremely short run. But when inflation is at, you know, multi-decades high, you're sitting on cash for just a year, year and a half. I mean, you can literally think of that as you're getting taxed at like a 10% rate, right? So just leaving money in cash is not the right answer either. I, I think it kind of goes back into the core fundamentals of investing. Understand the valuation of a business. Understand which sectors you're comfortable in. Don't think that companies will be able to easily just either raise cash. If it's cash burning, it can raise cash every six months or one year at crazy high multiples and keep this whole growth story going. Instead, go to the fundamentals, see what's a product that people truly love, that they will not be able to do without, that they are going to be willing to fathom a steady price increase of 5, 8, 10% a year, and yet they will continue to buy that product or purchase that service. And go after those select few winners, because during this huge flight to safety, when there are such crazy market moves, People just sell everything indiscriminately and go to cash. The problem is in this situation when there's inflation, you know, we'll be talking about probably about this in like a month or two months Mm -hmm. where people are like, oh, oh, wait a minute. I can't just leave my money in cash. It's getting eaten away. Okay, let me go and try and pick the winners in certain sectors or industries that I think have good tailwinds behind it. And that's when capital will start getting deployed into those places. So I think from a long-term investor's perspective, and I hope that that's, you know, most of the listeners of your show, it's to really identify those core businesses that have rock solid balance sheets. People love them, great brand name, excellent economic mode around the business model. And, you know, just buy it, buy those. I mean, back to investing 101, right, Michelle? This is not rocket science by any stretch of the means. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right, let's turn to the thesis of the former chairman of the Federal Reserve on markets as a whole, Ben Bernanke. He's got a new book out, by the way, and he says he sees stagflation ahead, that the Fed has been too slow on inflation and that we should prepare for a significant slowdown in growth. And I'm wondering for our listeners, Arun, could you give us a primer on stagflation, what it is and why economists are worried about it? Economists, investors, I mean, anyone who's got any money deployed in the market, the Mm. second you hear stagflation, (laughs) it it, it starts ringing these huge bells and like red flags start getting waved, right? Because stagflation is basically an amalgamation of two words or two economic theories where you have stagnant economic growth on one side and then high inflation on the other. Right? And the fundamental issue when we get into a situation where the world is not growing, businesses are not growing, people are getting laid off, jobs are getting lost, salaries are going down, etc. on one hand, and on the other side, for whatever reason, inflation is still picking up, right? So the cost of eggs that you're buying on a week-to-week basis goes up, the cost of wheat, rice, oil, the cost of a car, your train ticket, transportation, you're suffering from an underlying increase in price of goods or services. And when you have both of those opposing factors at play, mm. it makes the life of a central bank, I mean, let's talk about the Fed specifically, because they have a very clear dual mandate, right? Price stability on one side and maximization of employment on the other. When the world was going gangbuster crazy in terms of growth and expectations 
and everything else for the past five, six years, on the back of low interest, it was kind of like a Goldilocks period. Inflation, for whatever reason, wasn't spiking. And this is something that bewildered many economists, many investors, as to how on earth are we able to print so much money, yet inflation is not picking up. Yet at the same time, there was very steady growth, right? Sure, COVID happened, excluding that one quarter or two quarters of a big dip. From the global financial crisis, from the bottom, there's been very steady growth across the board, right? The West, as well as emerging Asia, Africa, the globe for that matter. So we were seeing this beautiful Goldilocks period, and that's getting all unraveled right now. Mm. And so now you're stuck in a situation where inflation is at like a multi-decade high. So there's no choice but to increase interest rates. And at pretty, you know, at, at a rapid clip, right? It's not just a 25 basis point every scheduled FOMC meeting. You're talking about 50 basis points. Maybe 75 basis points hope was dashed, but could be another couple of 50 basis points increases. So and that's, that's not just the Fed, that's central banks across the globe. Right. So we have that aspect of inflation kicking in, interest rates are going up. Once again, right, in- interest rates are like gravity to valuations of assets. Mm-hmm. So as interest rates go up, gravity, quote unquote, is increasing. So the price of these assets start coming down. But then you have this double family on the other side on the back of these COVID supply chain issues, geopolitical issues of, you know, Putin doesn't seem to be packing down at all in the near future. That's led to these huge other issues in terms of not just supply chain of specifically the raw materials that Ukraine was producing, like wheat and stuff, but you're seeing these reverberations of every country kind of like trying to close down its borders to some extent, right? Like look at palm oil in Indonesia. You can look at wheat exports in India. Everyone's realizing that, okay, this inflation's here to stay. I've got to start looking after my own people to begin with. And food is obviously... You know, the reason why there are riots in this world, in, especially in emerging Asia or the emerging parts of the globe. And as a government, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your own people. You start closing down your borders and that in turn drives higher inflation, which in turn will drive central banks to increase interest rates further to try to clamp down on the price growth. But that sadly leads to slowing of economic growth. So it becomes this negative cycle very, very quickly and we're kind of seeing that pan out over the past couple of weeks, right? I mean, Lomadel Arian came out yesterday saying the same thing. Yeah. So it's, it is quite scary from the perspective. And until valuations come back on track, it is a definitely a scary place to be as an investor. No doubt. It is indeed. Dare I ask you, what do we do in a bear market like this besides head for the, um, head for the exits? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, uh, way to put you on the spot there, Michelle. <laughs> no, I, I think from the perspective of, okay, as a retail investor, yes, right? Yes. Let's be positive. What do we have going for us? I would say there are two things, very broadly speaking. First and foremost, we have no one that we have to report, like, daily mark to market or weekly, monthly, like, all of these drawdowns. Having been a, been a trader in a bank before in my past life, mm-hmm. In the public market space, you know, on a daily basis, you have to value your position. And okay, are you down 1%? Are you down 2%? Up 3%, et cetera, et cetera. And that really forces you to think on a short-term basis. So from a retail person's perspective, Mm. as long as you're not leveraged, 
So basically, don't try to be greedy. I mean, no one should have been greedy even like six months or a year ago looking at these booming markets thinking they can make even more money. I personally have always been against that. And it doesn't make sense to be greedy at this point either but from any perspective, right? So as long as there's no leverage in what you're trying to buy, going back to investing 101, looking what you, at what you really like, parking a certain amount of capital into that, buying these rock-solid companies for the long run, right? So don't get affected by that. The other big advantage retail people have is you're not just dealing with necessarily a fixed amount of capital. Like you're out there, you're working, you're earning money, you have either your main job or your side jobs. You have a certain skill set that you can try to hopefully use to maximize the amount of earnings that you're able to get and take that capital and once again, not just get greedy and start going, taking leverage and deploying it in the markets, but slowly and steadily dollar cost averaging, you know, invest, invest for the long run, invest in a way that you would think that you would not have to touch this money for the next five, 10, 20 years. And it's funny, if you look at, you know, the S&P 500 index or any, you know, developed market index to a very large extent, Mm -hmm. if you go back, say 30, 40, 50 years, and you just bought it then and you hold, you held on to it till right now, you're earning a very decent six, 8% compounded return. But yet, through all of these long-dated moves, if you look at individual people, traders or punters, they've gone bankrupt, right? And it's amazing when you basically just zoom out, you could have just invested money in index funds without leverage, safe and steady, earning a very good, healthy rate of return with no issues at all. And yet, through all of this, people have somehow managed to like lose their money. And, And that just goes to greed, and timing the markets and think you can be better than, you know, some, your neighbor or someone else and try to make an extra, make a quick buck. That's not how markets work and that's not how investing works. And I think the last two, three months, we've seen an unraveling of all of that. Right. That makes me feel a lot better as a retail (laughs) investor. (laughs) That's a positive note. We are not hedge fund managers like Gabe Plotkin, who bet on GameStop and then now we're seeing Melvin Capital shutter its doors. Exactly. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you as always, Arun, for helping us decipher markets. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michelle. He's Arun Pai, part of the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.